Well, if there was anything that I despised growing up, it was testing. Um, I don't think there was ever a single test that I ever took that I enjoyed taking or enjoyed preparing to take. In fact, I despised tests so much in school that when I finally made it to that last great test in high school, the SATs, I put C all the way down just to be done with it. Children, I am a horrible example of what your parents would want from you. I put C all the day. I got a 930 because I'd written my name, and I put C. And, and as we think about testing and as we think about our own experiences, most of us would have to admit that we despise being tested, being tested. Tests are those things that show what you know and what you don't know and who you are. And, and, and tests are those things that reveal. Tests are those things that, that bear witness. They evidence. Uh, they, they bear witness to, to our competency, to who we are. And, and one of the things about tests is that the Bible teaches us so much about God testing his people. Um, one of the staples of our lives, if we are believers, is that God sends trials and tests into our lives. Uh, that is one of the unavoidable experiences of the Christian life. And it happens both at the beginning of the Christian life and it happens throughout the Christian life. And oftentimes, and usually, it will happen all the way to the end of a believer's life. And as we consider the nature of testing and how most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, do not like to be tested, we see as we come to Genesis 43 and 44 that God is testing his people. He is testing Jacob, he is testing the sons of Jacob. Now, last week we saw that God was sending conviction of sin to Jacob and conviction of sin to the sons of Jacob. Remember, it was, it was God working through Joseph and, and meeting out to the sons of Jacob exactly what they had done to him. 22 years have passed, 22 years, and the day of reckoning has come. And God uses Joseph, remember, first to speak harshly to the brothers as they had spoken harshly to him as a 17-year-old. And then God uses Joseph to, to uh, threaten them and say, you are spies, just as they had said to him, you've come to spy us out from our father. And then, and then he had taken one of them, remember, he had taken one and imprisoned them just as they had taken him and imprisoned him. He had dealt at every level. And then as they had sold him off for money, he had taken money and put it in their sacks, which seemed as if they had taken that money illegally and unlawfully. He had dealt with them exactly as they had dealt with him. And we saw last week that what the Bible says is true. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And with what measure we use, it will be measured to us. And that painful lesson that the sons of Jacob had to learn, and Jacob himself, who had shown favoritism, and now his, his beloved Benjamin, the only son left of his beloved Rachel, who had passed away, the only one of his favorited sons is now being threatened because Joseph has sent the brothers back and said, I will not release Simeon unless Benjamin comes. And that magnificent interaction between Joseph and Jacob and Joseph and the sons of Jacob and all that God is doing in finally bringing them to a place as we saw last time of God consciousness remember remember God said 
to, to the sons, uh, God had said to, to Joseph that his brothers would come and bow down to him. And as Joseph has dealt with him, they, they finally said, look in chapter 42, verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? It's the first time in 22 years you ever hear the sons of Jacob speaking about God. Because unbelievers never speak about God. They speak about themselves and their own actions and their own activities. Two decades in the only church that exists on earth, and they don't speak a word about God. And now God is beginning to convict them of their sins. What is this? What is this that God has done to us? And now we pick up in chapter 43, and you see that another stage of the Lord's dealing, both with Jacob and with the sons of Jacob, is occurring. And It's a test now. There are multiple tests with which God is testing them in order to bring them to a place of brokenness and contrition, a place where they'll confess their sin, acknowledge what they've done wrong, turn back to the Lord, plead for mercy, and find the grace and the mercy that God loves to give to all those who do that. And as we consider this morning these two chapters, we're going to consider two things. First, we're going to see the testing of Jacob and the marks of repenting grace in the life of Jacob. And secondly, we're going to consider the testing of the sons of Jacob and the marks of repentance in the life of the sons of Jacob. It really is a glorious chapter. God is humbling this covenant family. So much deception, so much wrong, so much twisting, so much perversion, so much dysfunction in the family that God had set apart for himself. And the last time we saw Jacob, and we we fixated on this last Sunday, the last time we saw Jacob, Jacob says, the final words of chapter 43, Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go down. He refuses to rescue Simeon. You see, he's old Jacob. He's He's still holding on to his son in an idolatrous way. And he doesn't care about his other son. And he says to his other sons who have come back, he says, my son shall not go down with you. His brother is dead. He's the only one that's left. If harm should happen to him, that would bring my gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol. And remember, Jacob said in the previous chapter, he said, he said, everything is against me. And and he didn't see the hand of God. He failed to see it. And then suddenly there's a change. In chapter 43, there's this marvelous change. And and Jacob has something happen within him. The, The grain has largely run out. We don't know how much they could have brought back, but it couldn't have been much. The grain has run out. The famine is still severe. God has intensified that providence, that that mysterious providence that forced Jacob and his sons over to Egypt for help. And now he sends his sons back to Egypt. Notice verse 3, Judah said to them, I'm sorry, verse 2, when they'd eaten and the grain they brought from Egypt was eaten, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Now, um, there are going to be several things you're going to see in this chapter that are remarkable. And and the, the stark contrast between Jacob in chapter 42 and Jacob in chapter 43 is, is stunning. 42, he would not let Benjamin go down. Everything's against me. He doesn't care about his sons. 
He's never cared about his sons. He doesn't trust his sons. He actually, he reveals that he thinks they probably really did something to Joseph and that he didn't just happen to die providentially and randomly uh, by being mauled by some beast and eaten by some beast, as they had said. He doesn't trust them. When they say to him, we're honest men, you know he doesn't believe that. And he doesn't care about his other sons and he doesn't care about Simeon. He only selfishly cares about Benjamin. He is a man full of selfishness. And in chapter 43, it's as if God has emptied him of that selfishness. By the way, that's going to be one of the large themes we're going to see this morning. When God brings someone to repentance, he empties them of their selfishness. That's the mark that you've passed the test. That's the mark. Jacob, supremely selfish. Now, He first, and this is remarkable, I'm going to set out five things for us to show that Jacob's life has been changed and that he is passing this test. First, Jacob cares for his family, this family in distress. Isn't that amazing? Didn't care for him in the last chapter. Only really cared about himself and Benjamin. Now he cares about his family. He says, listen, we need more food. He's caring for them. He's not going to let them die. He tells them, we don't want to perish. I don't want you to perish And so he says, go back. And he knows that sending them back means ultimately he's going to have to let go of Benjamin. He knows that. He is is being emptied of his selfish desires and his selfish idolatry. Secondly, he listens to wise counsel. It's very interesting. His son, Judah, says to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with us. And, and Judah steps to the occasion. We're going to see how important that is in a minute. Judah steps up. Judah pleads with his father. Judah says, we have to take Benjamin. There's no other way we can go. And Jacob listens. Jacob listens. Notice, notice this. It's remarkable. Jacob doesn't just listen begrudgingly. Jacob actually says in verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother Benjamin. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Here, Jacob is a different man. He's saying, go and may God bring you all back safely. He's, he's listening to the counsel of Judah and then, and then he's showing a willingness to generously give up his possession for the care of others. Remember, this is Jacob who didn't want to give up anything. He was the swindler. He swindled the birthright. He swindled Laban for the sheep. He was a man who was bent on gaining possession. And now he sends his son back, his sons, and he says, take double. Go, take grain, take myrrh, take all these things with you. He is a man who has been freed of selfishness. He has been freed of greed. He is a man who is free to bless others. He is a man who has been set free. There is a great song Uh, by Michael Card called Things We Leave Behind. And and, uh, he says in that first verse, there is Simon, foolish and wise, proudly he's tending his nets. Jesus calls and the boats drift away and all that he owns he forgets. And then he goes on to say, but leaving the nets he abandoned that day, he found that his pride was soon drifting away. Jacob is realizing what it is to be redeemed. Jacob's realizing what it is to live in light of God's sovereign mercy and grace. Jacob is a changed individual in this chapter. And notice, Jacob shows us that by the prayer that he prays over his sons in verse 14. He says, may God Almighty 
Grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your older brother and Benjamin. He is trusting the Lord. That's a prayer. He says, before you go, let's entrust ourselves to the Almighty God, El Shaddai. Let's entrust ourselves to the only one who governs all things, and may he, notice his language, may he give you grace. Jacob is no longer relying on his own scheming. Chapter 42, he's scheming Jacob. Chapter 43, he's selfless, generous, faith-looking, faith-acting Jacob, caring Jacob. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, that um, all sin is selfishness, and we know that, but, but when, when, when we are given over, when we're not trusting the Lord, our lives... Uh, begin to take shape of complete and entire selfishness. And we can cloak that very easily. We can, we can spin that any way we want. Well, I'm just trying to provide for my family. No, you're trying to lay out treasures on earth. We spin it in a thousand different ways. Selfishness. Self-interest. Self-purposes. And what the Bible says is that when God's grace comes to us, And when the gospel comes to us and when we realize all that Jesus Christ is, and this is the great importance and significance of all that Jesus teaches, isn't it? That that he became the lowest. He became servant to all. He became the Ebed Yahweh, the servant of Jehovah. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And one of the things that the Bible just on a recurring basis constantly keeps telling us is that if we are walking by faith in Jesus, then our lives are going to be marked by seeking to serve, especially the household of faith. That's, that's the picture here. Jacob is modeling that. These are not insignificant details. Jacob is learning what it is to serve the church of God, and to be a blessing to others. Jacob, finally, is willing to lose Benjamin. That's probably the biggest thing here. Notice the latter part of verse uh, 14. Notice he prays this prayer. It's very interesting, the juxtaposition of the two parts of verse 14. He prays this prayer. He says, may God Almighty be gracious to you, to his sons, and may he bring back Benjamin. And then he says, if I be bereaved, I'm bereaved of my children. So now John Calvin mistakenly says that, that Jacob is, is vacillating here. I don't think so. I think what Jacob is saying is, I'm trusting God to bring you back. I'm entrusting you, my sons, to the Almighty God. I'm entrusting my youngest son into the hands of the Almighty God, the only one that can bring him back. I'm, I'm trusting him. I'm looking to him to be gracious. And you know, as for me, if I lose it all, I lose it all. Now, there is not one person in this room that can tell me you are at a place where you could honestly say this morning, if I lose it all, I lose it all. I'm trusting the Lord so much. I, I often wonder how in the world could Job, everything's taken from Job, and the first thing he does, your beloved son, your beloved daughter. I met a man the other day that told me about a tragedy of a, a young child who died, and he looked at me and he said, really test your faith, doesn't it? I said, no, it's why you need faith in Jesus. And the first thing Job does is he falls down and he worships the Lord 
And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jacob is at that place by God's great grace. Jacob says, if I'm bereaved, he's, he's had his idol, his final idol, the last son of Rachel stripped out of his hands. And he realizes there's no other way. God has put this test there to free Jacob. And, and it's only in being free of our idols that we really learn the joy of living in light of the Lord and his kingdom and his purposes and his grace and what it means to walk by faith. Um, Jonah, when he's in the belly of the fish, has that great statement. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. Praise God, he strips us of our idols. And Jacob is a changed man. You know, there's a sense here where there's a doctrine of how God's grace works. I was thinking about this recently. I, I often... I often run up against nominal Christians or people who think they're Christians who probably aren't or unbelievers who would like to be Christians. And when some hardship happens in their home or to a loved one, they don't, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond. Um, and it's hit me recently. The reason why they don't know how to respond is because they haven't looked in the scripture at the multiplicity of ways that God works in the lives of his people in the scriptures, so that when he works in that multiplicity of ways in our lives, we will know how to respond and we will know how to teach our children to respond. And one of the things we see here with Jacob, and and I love this quote by Samuel Rutherford, grace withers without adversity. Grace withers without adversity. Grace doesn't thrive in the spring. Grace thrives in the winter. Grace withers without adversity. God brings all the adversity, and then you see God's grace thriving in changing Jacob. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that marvelous that God has invested so much wisdom in the way in which his grace and mercy work. And then secondly, we see that God is at work in testing through Joseph, the brothers. And we see that the brothers are now willing to go and the brothers are changed as well. It's, it's remarkable. You wonder what happened. You wonder how much time elapses between the last chapter and this chapter, but, but they're changed. They're different men. They're not the brothers who were so malicious in killing their younger brother. They're not the brothers who did so wickedly to Joseph 22 years before. They're not the brothers who themselves were so selfish for all those years, seeking their own things, doing so much harm. Remember, these brothers were the ones that eradicated an entire nation because of what they did to their sister. And one of these brothers, Judah, acted so sexually immoral with Tamar. And we saw all that. We saw there's been nothing good about these brothers. Suddenly, these brothers are being changed by God's grace. And we see it. We see it uh, in several ways. Just as we saw it in Jacob's life, we see it in the life of the sons of Jacob. Notice that there are these remarkable degrees of brotherly love happening. Now, this is extremely important because remember these brothers had no brotherly love in the early chapters and um and the the malice and the envy that they had for joseph they should have continued having for benjamin because it was the same principle the favoritism that their father was showing 
to Benjamin. Now they come along and, and, and they, they together unite in making sure that Benjamin will be safe. And in going and getting Simeon, they, they are united in their purposes. They are, they are united together. And notice in verse 13 of chapter uh, 44, notice this, that 44, 13, when, when Joseph has dealt with them and, and he's put the divination cup into the bag of Benjamin and, and they realize now Benjamin has to stay behind and what they've told their father they would do, they, they may not be able to do. And when all of that happens, notice what they do together in verse in, in verse 13 of chapter 44, notice this. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. They collectively tore their clothes over Benjamin. They didn't say, oh, well, well, there goes Benjamin. That's what they did with Joseph. They treated Joseph with absolute disdain, absolute selfishness, pride, envy. And here they are grieved that Benjamin is being taken away and that they've not been able to care for him like they should. Now, that is, I hope you know, one of the marks that you're a Christian. How do I pass the test? Everybody in here, I'm sure, professes to be a Christian. How do I pass the t- test that I'm actually a Christian? And John, in First John, gives us that litmus test. If we love the brethren, do we love other believers? Do we deeply care for other Christians? Do we seek to serve them? Do we seek to selflessly care for them through all of our lives? That's the test. If you, if you hate your brother that you've seen, you belong to the evil one. If you love your brother, then that's the mark, the evidence that you love the Lord. And they've learned, haven't they? They've learned how to love the brethren. Um, it's not what makes you a Christian. It's the evidence. They've passed the test. And, and notice they are passing the test. Notice in verse 16, they acknowledge that they don't deserve mercy. Now, Judah becomes the spokesman. And this is going to become very important here at the end. But notice what Judah says on their behalf in verse 16. This is supremely important. Judah says to Joseph, when Joseph says, no, we're only going to keep back Benjamin. You all can go freely. Judah stands up and Judah says to them, and this is presumably to all the servants in the house, to Joseph and um, in front of them all, Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? Notice he's speaking on their behalf. He's their representative. What shall we say to my Lord? Lost my place. What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. So what are they doing? Judah and his brothers are finally coming to a place of confessing their sin and acknowledging they don't deserve the mercy of God. They don't deserve the grace of God. By the way, that is one of the greatest tests that you're a Christian. If in your soul you feel like you don't deserve the mercy and grace of God and that you deserve the judgment and wrath of God, that is a very, very good mark. Remember, Jacob was the one that had said earlier to the Lord, I don't deserve the least of the mercies or the kindness you've shown your servant. Here, he's acknowledging that the brothers are acknowledging they don't deserve mercy, that that the Lord has found us out, our sin has found us out. We are guilty. We deserve worse than this. We deserve everything that we're getting, everything that's happening to us. And you know, 
I think it works that way in our life that God chastens and, and, and we may look around and we may say, well, I'm not, I've not done that sin. I've not done that. I'm not like that. I don't do this. I don't do this. My friends, you are so very sinful and I am so very sinful. And in our heart of hearts, we know that we deserve much worse than what we deserve. I've always loved uh, Psalm 103 where the psalmist says to the Lord, you have not treated us according to our sins. Let that sink in. He has not treated us according to our sins. He has not punished us according to our iniquities. We should be punished according to our sins. We should be punished according to our iniquities. Here the brothers are acknowledging all of this. And then thirdly, and most remarkably, Judah is ready to substitute himself for his brother. Now, remember, Reuben, at the end of chapter 42, tries to plead with his father to let them go back and get Simeon. But it's kind of a hypocritical plea. He's like, hey, if we don't come back, you can have my two sons. He's not really, he's, he's not owning up. He's not taking ownership. Here, Judah says to Joseph, let me stand in the boy's place. Let me be put in prison. Let him go. Let me be the pledge. Now, why is that remarkable? Why is that remarkable? Because the last time you heard about a pledge with Judah, it's when he went into Tamar thinking she was a prostitute. And when she asked for a pledge, he gave her his signet and his staff. And then when he hypocritically wanted to burn her, for playing the harlot, she held up the signet and the staff and said, I did this with the man who gave these to me as a pledge. That's the last time you see Judah pledging something. And now, and this is the most remarkable thing of God's grace, Judah is pledging himself. Isn't that amazing? He's not... He's not saying, let us leave all the money. Let us bring you back more money. Let us leave this. Let us leave that. He's pledging himself. He's saying, let me be the pledge. He's taking a play in a sense. This is anachronistic to say this, but he's taking a play out of Moses's playbook. When Moses says, let me be blotted out for the people. Let me stand in the place of the people. Let me, Lord, take your wrath for the people. And the Apostle Paul, oh, that I wish that I could be accursed for my countrymen according to the flesh. Oh, that I could be accursed so they could be redeemed. Now, what is happening here? What is happening here? I think you have several layers of things that are happening in this chapter. One thing, and, and we've seen this so clearly, God is bringing Jacob and the sons of Jacob to a place of repentance, contrition, brokenness. That, that has to happen. I'm going to say this this morning. If you forget everything else that I've said, you forget everything else, you must repent of your sins. That has to happen. If you're going to go to heaven, you must be a person who is repenting of your sins. That has to happen. If you do not go to the Lord in brokenness, contrition, and repentance, you fail the test. You failed. You're not a Christian. You will perish forever. That is a non-negotiable. Jesus came and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
He stood when news came to him about a tower that fell at 18 people, and he said, do you think they were worth sinners? No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If the sons of Jacob had not repented, what would have happened to them? They would have perished. Joseph was acting as a type of Christ. He was drawing that confession of sin out of them. It was actually full of love and mercy, isn't it? Jesus stands and he draws that out of us. He gives us the grace to repent. He, he encourages it. He puts the test there. He puts the trials there so that we would go and we would freely confess that we would say our sins have found us out. Lord, have mercy on us. That's the cry everywhere in the Gospels. Have mercy on me. This is the least preached doctrine, and yet you won't go to heaven if it doesn't happen. You need to repent, and I need to repent. That's the point of Genesis 42, 43, and 44. And then the good news is that God graciously granted that repentance, and God nurtured that repentance, and God stimulated and animated that repentance, and God transformed these men. They didn't change themselves. This wasn't a self-improvement program. They, they realized, you know what? You know how Judah could do what he could do? He had the spirit of Christ in him. That's what happened. I, I know it's not in the text, but it's in the text. At some point, the Holy Spirit changed Judah's heart so that he looks like the Lord Jesus. Who, who stands in the place of the guilty? Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah the one that descends from Judah, the one who comes and he says, my father, I will stand in the place. And you know what? It's really interesting. Joseph denies that privilege. Joseph says essentially, no, it has to be Benjamin. And God the father says, yes, my son, you will stand in the place. I will let you stand in the place of my people I will let you be wounded for their sins. You know, this is the point of Isaiah 53, isn't it? The servant of the Lord would come. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put his soul to grief. When he made his soul an offering for sin, he saw the travail of his soul, and he was satisfied. Now that means, as we close this morning, several things. It means that none of the repentance, none of the, 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 none of the, the confession of our sins happens apart from seeing that there is a substitute in the Lord Jesus. There, there, there will not be any true repentance in our lives until we see that Jesus has stood in the gap and has taken the wrath for my sin. That's, if, you want, if you're here today and you're thinking, well, I don't know, I don't like hearing that, you need to see what Jesus suffered. Every time we sinned, it's nailing him to the tree. Every little sin nails him to the tree. Every harsh word, Every judgmental word, every gossip, every slander, every selfishness nails him to the tree. Every single thing we do wrong, laziness, greed, everything, it nails him to the tree. But it does so in order to produce in us 
a sense that we so desperately need that mercy that God is holding out. And God is holding Christ crucified up and he's saying, I have taken your place. I have stood in your place. You are free. You are redeemed. You are reconciled. Now, next week we're going to see what this produces and how all that sort of fits together. But I want to ask you this morning, have you ever come to a place where you, you, you realize that something's happened to you and your life has changed? Every one of us is, is being tested. Every one of us, we have to pass the test. Not in order to merit salvation, but to show that we've been the recipients of it. Have, have we and are we being emptied of our selfishness? Are we learning that what it means for me to be a recipient of grace is that I want to serve others? And I want to hold lightly to possessions and people and things and anything else. And I'm ready to give it up. I'm ready to say with Jacob, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. If it's my loss, it's my loss. I'll count it all loss, Paul says. I count it all loss that I may gain Christ. And then I'd ask you if, um, and this is a, a question we have to ask ourselves on a recurring basis. You have to ask yourself, am I acknowledging the greatness of my sin before the living God? And am I going to him in brokenness and contrition? Am I, you know, David says in Psalm 51, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, these are the sacrifices he does not reject. These are the sacrifices he wants. What does God want from you? A rent heart. He wants you to rend your heart over your sin. Now, what do I do? I'll close with this. What do I do when I don't feel that? What do I do when that's not characteristic of my life? Because honestly, there are many times I don't feel that. I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, you are the holy and the righteous and the just one. And you have told me to come to you and to say, take away my iniquity and receive me graciously. You have provided the sacrifice. You have given one to stand in my place. You have sent him to atone. Oh, God, give me a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And you know what? The Lord promises to do that. He promises to give you every good thing that you ask for in his word. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray this morning that you would grant us, as you granted Jacob and as you granted the sons of Jacob, uh, renewed repentance. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us broken spirits and contrite hearts, that you would help us to come to terms with the fact of the greatness of our sins and, and that you are a God who tests us in order to reveal to us uh, what we've done in and, and order to, to prove what you have made us by your grace. And so, our God, we pray that you would be sovereignly at work this morning in the lives, in the hearts, in the minds, in the inner depths of each and every one in this place. We pray, our God, that we would, by your grace, be men and women whose lives evidence that we have received that grace and that we have been transformed by the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come as the greater Judah, that you have stood in our place, and as the greater Joseph, that you have dealt with us with perfect wisdom in order to bring this about in our lives. So we pray that you would continue that work in us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.